Hello, flying pigs and movies, now more than ever, and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick a favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. Our guest today is a hell of a writer and also a senior editor for Slate. Uh, he was previously the editor of Critic Wire, IndieWire's film and TV criticism blog, and his byline has appeared at the Los Angeles Times, Rolling Stone, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's a member of the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics, and is just an all-around swell guy. Ring-a-ding-ding, here's Sam Adams. Hi, Sam. Hi, Jason. Hi, Mike. Thank you for uh, having me. Oh, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I mean, we are in... One of the busiest times of the year for people who do what we do, uh, coming off Sundance, heading into the Oscars, uh, still kind of wrapping up the end of the year. Uh, I do want to ask you, as, as a contemporary, you know, we asked our mutual friend, Alyssa Wilkinson, for thoughts on 2023, on the year in film. How do you feel about the, the year that just ended with a little bit of distance? Was this a good year for movies? I think it was an incredible year, and I, I feel like I have been saying this as loudly as I can because as, as much as people have talked about it, I don't think they've quite um, come to terms with just how great it was. It is a year where, as I was making up my top 10 list, not only did I have you know twice as many movies, but there were movies that I was re really glad that got pushed into 2024, so I didn't sure. have to do the brutal work of figuring <laughs> out whether to get them on there. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just, just extraordinary. I mean, what do you think is behind that? Do you think there's any sort of particular... Because we talk about that on the show a lot, but usually with the, you know, the, the benefit of more hindsight, was there a particular sort of confluence of, of, of influences or events or whatever that sort of led to such a bumper crop in this last year? I mean, it, you know, it's always this, you know, incredible, I mean, like with any movie individually, it's always the sort of nexus of all these invisible and visible forces coming together in ways involved also involving like, you know, sunspots and right. um, <laughs> vibes and whatever else. Um, you know, if you had to put a finger on something, I mean, I think probably people people coming roaring out of the gate after the pandemic, um, everybody having, you know, an extra year and a half or whatever to work on their scripts or plan out their movie or mm -hmm. have things fall through and then and then just be so like May, December, for example, a movie last year was not the movie that Todd Haynes was going to make, but it was just all of a sudden they were able to film and that was the thing they could do. So, right. you know, that wasn't one like, you know, Barbie, I think they had an extra year and a half to work on the script. May, December was just like, I got to make something. It's been like way too long and they just came roaring out of the gate. And so I think, you know, whether it's one of those things or or the other, um, you know, that's a lot of what was, was coming to bear. And I think, you know, in terms of um, documentaries, which probably close to half my list were, sure. um, you had um, just a lot of maybe some extra time in the editing room, but also a lot of um, intimacy that was forced by the pandemic and movies yeah. like um, The Eternal Memory or Still Small Voice, um, where you, people are just really forced into close quarters. Emotions are really high. People are like, mm -hmm. you know, saying all the things they wouldn't normally say. And that just makes for great movies. That all totally scans. Yeah, especially the thing about extra time for scripts. Imagine if people took the time to make sure that a screenplay was as good <laughs> as it could possibly be. Um, speaking of which, you wrote a really terrific piece for Slate recently about the decline of the superhero movie as a cultural force and as a sure thing at the box office. If the death knells are true, what are the next couple of years going to be like for mainstream movie making? Because this is not a, piv uh, a business that typically pivots uh, nimbly. <laughs> well, this is an inter interesting question to to uh, ask me because I think um, you know I try to have my finger on the pulse of the culture and sure. you know examine where things are going. I'm maybe like you never want to take my advice if you're betting on something. Like I am the worst <laughs> prognosticator, like in the world. Uh, I you know I remember for example like walking out of the movie Warrior. If you remember that, the Ultimate mm -hmm. Fighting movie with Tom Hardy, and it's like that movie's going to make a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, I think it made. 12 yeah. um so yeah don't trust my gut or or anything um i mean I, you know i think what probably was going to happen is we're just going to find this kind of ip driven movie blockbuster thing that we have going on now just maybe steering a little bit away from superheroes it's going to be very interesting to see what uh marvel and dc are basically taking the year off um mm -hmm. this year there's one you know one marvel movie coming out um it's going to be really interesting to see 
what happens to the genre in 2025 when they've all had you know time to sit in the corner and think about what they've done mm-hmm. uh and if they're able to you know because the genre i started off um loving what another piece i wrote this year was um they wrote about the, the flash movie um mm-hmm. but also about my experience of seeing the first batman movie as i think a 15 year old and just that experience like really imprinting on me like mm. just i saw it in a screening that i bought tickets through my comic book store i think it was a saturday morning with a bunch of nerds and boy when the you know bat plane like flew up through the clouds and like hung in front of the moon and it makes a bat symbol like that room went Whoa! insane yeah <laughs> yeah and i think you know a lot about um and we're gonna get into this as we talk about 1992 which is one of the reasons that i chose it but as i um i have a 14 year old daughter and as i'm starting to raise her on things um more more music than movies but i think a lot i've been thinking a lot about how things were kind of passed on to me or not or space was made for them or the places where i had to just kind of forge my own paths and when i came across certain things and i really um that kind of Batman screening was, I think, in a way, like, that's kind of the excitement that I've been chasing ever mm-hmm. since. And it's so rare now. Even when you go to kind of opening night of a big movie, there's, like, 12 people in the theaters. <laughs> and one of the reasons I keep going to, to film festivals is because that's, like, right. the, one of the few places you reliably get a yeah. crowd like yeah. that. Um, so, you know, if, if the superhero movie can come back and provide that again, that would be great. I remain... Um, I think a fan of pretty consistently disappointed one, um, but underneath <laughs> it all, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for y'all. I um, mean, so, so maybe next year, who knows? I, I think you're egregiously overlooking the cultural forces that are Madame Webb and um, <laughs> Christ. What's the other one? I don't even know the title. Oh, Madame, no, it is amazing that Sony, which is like the junk shop of, <laughs> Marvel movies they have all the all the characters that like they can make movies in the spider-man universe but they can't use spider-man right, like that's right. their situation so they have right. madam webb and craven the hunter and craven the, the, the hunter third, the, and the third venom movie coming out this year um yeah so they have more comic sure. book movies coming out this year than anybody else that's how sure. dire the, the circumstances are sounds good can't wait they're all uh bound to be instant classics uh sam as you mentioned you chose 1992 as your very good year uh take us back what tell who was little sammy adams in 1992 and in his movie going life yeah well little little sammy adams i suppose turning into somewhat larger uh sammy adams this is uh right about um you know, my freshman, sophomore year in college, this is okay. when I'm kind of just starting to get um, serious about movies beyond the stuff that I was raised on. I was, I was, um, you know, like I was raised in a suburban family where basically the, the two things we did, you know, we spent a lot of time together as, as a family. And the two things we did were we went out to restaurants and we saw movies, um, either at a theater or at home. Right. You know, um, there's a, I think the first recorded evidence of my existence is a picture of me like at the local video store, like shopping for a movie <laughs> with my mom. Um, so, but it was, but we just kind of consumed things. We weren't like sort of, you know, it, my family is not intellectuals or cinephiles or anything. We just love movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a certain point, I, as a, as a teenager, as teenagers, I wanted to became much more serious and pretentious about it. I got a hold of my first Pauline Kael book. Um, Yay. Forever. Yay. Um, yeah. So, but this, this was, you know, the period when I'm, you know, off in college, I'm, um, you know, spending summers at home in the car driving to um, the, the Sono Cinema in uh, South Norwalk, Connecticut, which is a pretty pivotal mm-hmm. uh, place for me where I saw a lot of the movies we're going to talk about. Um, and just really my world was expanding in that really exciting way that it does at the time of your life. And I think, um, you know, maybe if I'd been 19 or 20 in... 1985 or 2005 I would have had a similar experience but it feels right. in retrospect like a very lucky time to to come into that um the sort of independent boom um is independent film boom of the 90s is really starting to flourish um new queer cinema is all over the place which was just the most exciting thing for me at the time um we're going to talk about that too um and uh the sort of a, a the post Roger and me kind of influx of documentaries as well i think we're probably the three forces that were just um really getting me jazzed at the time so i was i was being introduced to filmmakers who had become incredibly important to me um and these these forms that i really was had either no experience with or very little um and just my head sort of exploding in the the most delightful way 
All right. Well, this is a really cool list. I'm looking forward to talking about all of these with you. But before we get to that, we're going to find out what was going on in the world outside of the Sono Cinema in 1992. Here's Mike with headlines. 1992 is a very busy year. Mm-hmm. There was a presidential election and some riots and a big hurricane and some famous people went to jail. It was a very busy year. Great. I remember 1992. Mm-hmm. I know everyone Not- here is of an age to remember 1992. <laughs> 1992 was, for the record, the first full year that I worked at a video store. Like, so literally every movie that we had that we have in the top five, in the Hollywood Minute, in the lightning round, I can remember the VHS box for that particular movie. <laughs> that's that's all how I you connect. Fucking movie writers got a story, man, and it's all mm-hmm. the same story. It's some <laughs> version of that same yep. story. I can remember where I saw this thing yep. when I was 14. Okay, sorry. Let's get on with the news. Dan Quayle was still vice president, and that was hilarious. <laughs> this was the year that he famously got into a fight with a TV character named Murphy Brown, yes. played by Candace Bergen, and intentionally about as feminist as you could be on network TV at the time. Right, don't you yep. think? Yep, definitely. They were definitely looking to create maybe not controversy, but conversation. You sure. know, they sort of knew what they were doing, right? Sure. What no one could have expected is for the vice president to have an opinion that he would voice out loud. And I think it's safe to say what the vice president didn't expect was for anyone to care <laughs> what he thought. But that was like a major news story, Huge story. that year. Huge story, yeah. And it was all, like, it wasn't real. No, she wasn't no. really... None Not of that was person. really happening, but, you know, Not we talked person. about it. So many fake. Sure did. Sure Arthur Ashe and Magic Johnson both had press conferences to announce that they had tested positive for HIV. Magic Johnson is obviously the end of the road for great porn names, but somehow this Magic Johnson was a basketball player who retired from the game after a bunch of people said they didn't want him to get sweat on them. Yeah. Enlightened age. Mm-hmm. And other fake news conversations um arthur ash on the other hand was going to be outed by usa today actually by somebody oh, who damn. he had once considered a friend oh wow. uh, that's a fucking terrible story so he tried to get in front of the story but he obviously wasn't very happy about it uh ash had heart trouble throughout his life both of his parents had bad heart trouble and doctors believe he contracted the virus from blood transfusions during his second heart surgery he did not last much after 92. A yeah. very famous Hollywood couple had a very public divorce that was so dramatic it crossed over into the regular news cycle, but we're not going to talk about that here because it was also somehow a movie. <laughs> In- an insane story from 1992. AT&T released a video telephone that cost $1,500 and was useless because nobody else had one. <laughs> but do it's you true. know there were 10 million mobile phones sold in 1992? Jeez. Yeah, not the video ones, but 10 yeah, million. Yeah, Did you yeah. know anybody that had a cell phone? Like, that no. was like drug dealer shit, like in movies. Were they still in suitcases at that point, or were they <laughs> the size of like a small shoebox? Like, I can't remember where they we were. They were the, the Wall 92. Street one. The Wall Street yeah, one. Okay. Yeah, okay. But I still remember going to the mall and you'd see the guys with the with the pack, mm-hmm. you know, and like some of them, if you were like an important enough drug dealer, your homie had the pack and you. <laughs> would just use the phone and then put i saw that in real life in the 90s with my own face it was like having a ring bearer but for himself (laughs) jeffrey dahmer pled guilty but insane and as much as i hate to be on the same side of any subject with jeffrey dahmer i'm willing to co-sign that plea here here he was insane that's right he was mike tyson went to jail for rape and john Gotti went to jail for basically everything else you can go to jail for Bye. He, he didn't get sexual assault, but his list was long. Overall, gun violence was one at one of the highest levels in American history. There were gangs everywhere. Drive-by shootings were the mindless uh, mass events of the day. And the suicide rate was sky-fucking-high. Hmm. Yeah, gun Fun. violence. Very, yep. very bad. In yep. March, President George H.W. Bush apologized for raising taxes. And look, you had to be there. But trust me, that shit was fucking hilarious. There's no <laughs> way to explain to people now how funny that was. But it was funny <laughs> when it happened. And finally, on December 27th, 1992, singer Harry Connick Jr. was caught with a gun at JFK Airport in New York. I don't know the details. I just really like the idea of Harry Connick Jr. traveling heavy in 92. It's like that whole year rolled up into one stupid paparazzi photo. It's perfect. Harry Connick Jr. with a gat. That's headlines. 
Thank you, Mike. All right, Sam Adams, you ready to do a top five? Yeah, that is so many things I have not thought about in 32 years. Thank you. (laughs) All right, so uh, we're doing a, this is not ranked, this is not chronological, this is not alphabetical. This, according to Mr. Adams, is a vibes-based ordering. So, Sam, what is the first movie on your top five for 1992? Well, my the first movie on my top five for 1992 is Woody Allen's Husbands and Wives, because no guts, no glory. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's do. It's about marriage. Jack and I are splitting up. Don't make a big deal out of it, okay? Because we're both fine. You think we'd ever break up? No, I'm not planning it, are you? It's about divorce. You're great till you start to show your age. Then they want a newer model. She said, fuck the And what happens in between? Who's this? Who's this? This is, this is my husband. It's none of your business. Please, please. Bus- Husbands and wives. So I misbehave. Does it have to be irreversible? Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Yeah, so this was a big, this is a big movie for me. I have a very sort of specific, like, sense memory of, um, I don't remember where actually, but like going to see this, like with my mom, um, kind of like walking back to the car down some like sort of dark suburban street. I don't know where the hell we were. Um, But, uh, you know, I can't imagine what was going through her head at the time. This is, I guess, uh, like four years before my parents got divorced. So there, I'm sure there oh. were like currents going through there that I was not Ooh. aware of. Um, this is also kind of notoriously like the the movie that um, shot in this very sort of aggressive pseudo documentary, like handheld style that was making people like viscerally like sick to their stomachs um, from, from motion sickness. So there's a lot, a uh, lot going into this one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as Mike alluded to in the headlines, this was the movie that Woody Allen and Mia Farrow were making when they broke up. Um, and in fact, what is the timeline here? Can you please explain to me I will. and everybody else who doesn't remember the timeline of this? This movie made me want to vomit several times <laughs> yeah. out of like anxiety. And I don't even know what it it was during the making of this movie that Mia Farrow found the Polaroids that Woody had taken of Sunni Previn. It, it is worth just for 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 clarity's sake, uh, not to make excuses for anyone. Mike, you did say it was a divorce, which it was not. Woody and Mia were never married. They were uh, uh, partners uh, who maintained separate residences, but were a public-facing couple for the better part of a decade. And um, they, uh, she discovered the Polaroids of that Woody had taken of her. Uh, maybe of age daughter, stepdaughter, or excuse me, uh, adopted daughter. Um, but, uh, they broke up. Um, they, they, there was still one scene together left to what shoot. What was in, in those pictures? In, they were explicit. Uh, they right. were. That's all. That's enough. That's yeah. enough. They, they were, were explicit. As, as the kids say today, they were nudes. Um, <laughs> so. and there was one scene for Mia left to shoot in the movie, which was the scene where they break up. I'm not making this up. It's been in documentaries and books. So yeah. she had to come back and shoot this open wound of a scene of this longtime couple breaking up when they had just done that very same thing. So this movie comes out and it uh, is a, a sort of a phenomenon because this had become, this was a, now a huge tabloid story and there are many eerie parallels to the real life events in the movie. I did not mean to take over the segment, Sam. What is it that, that, that struck no, you? No, but that's important. I mean, that's it a, is. like, it's important. If we're going to talk about fucking Broadway, Danny Rose, we don't got to go through the whole thing. Right. <laughs> but if we're talking about husbands and wives, Right. No, and this was, I mean, I was, I had to sort of check the timeline on this because I think it was actually reversed in my head. But the movie came out um, and in, in retrospect, you can see them sort of like doing the sort of advanced PR blitz, like knowing this is going to come out anyway. But the movie came out, I think almost exactly a month after the sort of famous slash infamous um, Time magazine, The Heart Wants What It Wants uh, yes. cover story where Woody Allen uh, kind of stole Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. Um, and ruined it forever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, later, later stolen back by Selena Gomez, inter- hey! inter- uh, incidentally. But yes, thank you, Selena. Um, yeah, so it came out like very much under under that um, cloud. I think at the time I didn't really know what to to make of it, and I sort of, um, I mean, I think I, I don't know. I think it's probably not true. I think I probably at the time kind of bought 
more or less the the heart wants what it wants um, mm-hmm. approach sure. to this. I mean, the, the stuff about him uh, molesting his stepdaughter Dylan had not come out at the time, right. so this was, you know, as far as we knew, uh, at this point, consensual relationship that had started under uh, incredibly inappropriate at yes. best um, circumstances. But at this point, they were grown adults saying, like, "Look, we're in love." You know, right. people don't understand, but that's you know, that's their problem, not ours. Um, and I think I, you know, thought I was being probably very open-minded in um, taking them at their word, but it, it was. A sophisticated. Um, yeah. And it was, I mean, I was not one of those people who like liking Woody Allen was my whole uh, personality, but it was definitely somebody who I consciously, like I, I saw every movie of his in the theater since I think uh, Alice, mm-hmm. um, you know, up through, I, I think Small Time Crooks was the first one I missed and I've mm-hmm. yet to run into anybody who tells me that I need to uh, yeah, fix you're that fine. hole you're in fine. my viewing history. Um, but yeah, so he was, you know, somebody who certainly like um, I was, you know, attached to and, and kind of thought about a lot. And this seemed um, in in retrospect to me, like kind of the last, um, not only the last at the time, you know, I thought the kind of great movie he made, but the last one that he would ever make because he, I, you know, I think something kind of went out after the Sunni stuff went public. I think he kind of, um, I think about that line at the end of Brazil, he's gone away from us. Um, like, I think he just kind of went away for like, he pulled back from his movies mm-hmm. and I don't think they were ever, you know, for good or for ill, um, as personal after mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. this is, you know, this is a brutal movie in a lot of ways. It's, uh, you know, sort of nominally a comedy at times. Um, it is the setup is basically there are two married couples in it sort of, um, middle-aged midlife crisis in couples one is woody and mia um one is Sidney pollock and judy davis um judy davis incidentally um i have to be honest like a major crush object for me mm-hmm. um and there's something about a middle-aged like an angry middle-aged woman like <laughs> like just saying the word motherfucker over and over again <laughs> i just found incredibly um enticing I, my therapist and i will discuss this later but um she's so great in this it's not just that she says motherfucker. It's like she says motherfucker. Like it's just yes. like she she like drags out the U's in it in just a really delicious way. But if you saw this movie in the theater, it's one mm-hmm. thing to see this movie as a goddamn teenager. Like I've seen this movie before, but I wasn't married with two kids and yeah. forty seven. Like this movie hit me so much harder now than it did when I was twenty seven. And yeah. like not even trying to be in a situation like that, right? And it's not just a matter of sort of not necessarily giving him the benefit of the doubt that we would have once upon a time, but it's also just sort of actually like these are the worst conversations that a married couple can have, right? Yeah. And like even if you don't have these conversations with your spouse, you think about them you've you have had those thoughts before about having those conversations and your thoughts about them are the worst possible versions and i am watching this movie and i always wonder why people make things like as a person who (laughs) make things you know makes things like i'm always sort of curious what the artist is what their intention was right because that's never the text it's always the subtext Mm -hmm. but it's important Mm -hmm. and i'm watching this movie like why the fuck would anybody write any of this shit down let alone like then go film it with people you care about and yeah. then like make everybody watch it. It's just sort of <laughs> seems insane. Why would you go to the worst possible places? And at some point it occurred to me that maybe it's because these aren't his worst possible places. Mm. Maybe these aren't the worst conversations he can imagine having with his mm. wife. So there mm-hmm. remains enough of a barrier there for him right. to put this down and go put it out in the world in a way for me that like, that's the raw shit that I got. I mean, this is almost the point, you know, in like the sort of, you know, the criminal minds episode or whatever, where they tell you like the serial killer is like trying to get caught. Um, (laughs) This is is, is the work of a man who like wants to be caught. You know, he is just like putting it all in there. Um, I'm not necessarily even like praising him for that, but this is, um, it is very close to the bone. I mean, these are conversations about sort of middle-aged like sexual dysfunction, um, the point at which love sort of may have turned to contempt and you can no longer tell the difference between the two of them. Um, you know, the point at which people kind of decide to stay together, even though they don't love each other, just because it's easier than uh, not doing that. Yeah. Um, so it is, it, I mean, this, this is, um, you know, basically his scenes from a marriage, I think. Um, and, and every bit is sort of like brutal and uncomfortable as that movie yeah. can be. 
But yeah. also that scene in the in the thunderstorm is sexy as hell with like the yeah. least sexy leading actor in the last 50 years of cinema. That's yeah. that's talent. Like that's yeah. re, like that's that, yeah. that's not an accident that that happens, right? The yeah. guy does know how to make fucking movies. No, the scene that I think about more often than than maybe any other in that is the scene with Juliet Lewis in the back of the cab. Like, you know, that he's not just doing this sort of like shaky handheld pseudo documentary aesthetic but that to the make the choice in that scene that that no the camera crew would only have one camera in the cab it would keep it on her and what happens when you have a scene where you just watch someone not only talking but listening um her her, her the work she's doing in that scene is just incredible and the and he, hearing him at his sort of most ferocious off camera is equally devastating it's such a fascinating choice and if I recall, I mean, that part originally was completely, they completed the movie with a different actress and then they like reshot all, all those scenes with Julia Lewis. I don't know if that they had done the entirety or at least uh, a chunk of it, which no, he sometimes right. yeah, did. Okay, yeah. He would, he would recast during if it wasn't working out. But yeah, Emily Lloyd was, was right. in that from, yeah. from, from Cookie. Uh, and then he recast with Juliette Lewis and you just can't imagine anybody else. She's so perfect yeah. in the role. It's an incredible yeah. piece of acting. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, cause I rewatched um, some of this, I had forgotten um, the sort of that this, handheld stuff is actually part of like a legitimate pseudo documentary with like right. an off camera interviewer and then mm -hmm. a, like a separate narrator of it. Although there's yeah. also scenes where like Sidney Pollock's talking about the time he went, like went to go visit a prostitute and like all of a sudden there's a documentary camera right. in the room with them with a <laughs> flashback to this. Right. And it's like, well, what was, where yeah. was, how this camera crew doing there? So it's right. not um, sort of like fetishistically, um, it's not that it's just an excuse to like move the camera out around a right. lot, but that's right. sort of an interesting aspect of that, that had completely fallen out of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I, I, you know, uh, top five Woody for me, maybe top three. Uh, Sam Adams, what is the second movie on your vibes based 1992 list? Okay, well, we're talking about uh, pivotal auteurs for me. Um, Robert Altman is at, if not, it was, it was near, if, or it's probably at the top, um, mm -hmm. certainly at this point in my life. This is when The Player came out. The critics are calling The Player a masterpiece. It's going to be funny? Yeah, it'll be funny. Smart. We're going to have to have a little sex in this mystery. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll get it. Sophisticated. Are you seeing someone else? No. You took her to a party, Griffin, with several hundred of my best friends. Brilliant. It's out of Africa meets Pretty Woman. A delectable high comedy. This is Pasadena. We do not arrest the wrong person. That's L.A. Four stars. Yes. Robert Altman's The Player. Rated R. I just, you know, remember reading all these reviews and articles about it, about this amazing sort of vicious Hollywood satire with this guy that I, I probably never heard of, certainly never seen a movie by. Um, at that point, um, there are scenes in this movie that I still think about on a weekly basis, particularly the bit, um, it's, it's uh, for those who don't know, it's about um, Tim Robbins plays this Hollywood executive named Griffin Mill, um, who accidentally murders a screenwriter. Um, and then sort of, <laughs> you know, that, that's a subtle, that's a level of like subtle satire we're yeah. dealing with here. Yeah. Um, but there's a scene where there's like a conference table scene at the studio where they are, um, Peter Gallagher, I think, plays this new executive who's just came in and has this great great idea about like we don't need writers anymore we can just like pick up the paper and you know pick a headline story writes itself no problem um and griffin mill responds to him yeah what i, I was just thinking what an interesting idea it is to eliminate the writer we can just get rid of these actors and directors maybe we really have something here <laughs> um and even if like you know, 30% of our friends in media had not lost their jobs in the last two months. Um, mm -hmm. I would still be thinking of this because especially with, with the push towards AI and stuff, this sort yeah. of fantasy of like art with no creators that you can then, you know, don't have to deal with those personalities. You can do whatever you want. I, I just, it's such a bedrock fantasy of mm -hmm. people who run some of these institutions. And it just, um, that scene in particular, you know, comes back to me all the time. Yeah, it's it's a it's I I think this was sort of my introduction to Altman as well. It was it was a name that I had heard um but you know, he this was a comeback for him. Like he had sort of been working in the periphery for since basically Popeye. Um and to sort of roar back in with this, you know, howl of of righteous indignation at this industry that had forsaken him and the fact that he got so many people to join him for it that it's just this like parade of perfect cameos 
uh, you know, it, it was, it was a really hot movie to see and talk about when it came out. And then of course, you know, once you're sort of, I, I mean, I'm assuming we had similar experiences where then once you know who he is, then you like go back and start rewatching, you know, tracking down things on tape and seeing, you know, California split or the long goodbye or some of the other stuff for the first time. Uh, all right, Sam, then what is the third movie of your top five for 1992? Okay, my third movie is uh, Edward II by Derek Jarman. Come Gaveston and share this kingdom with thy dearest friend. In 1593, Christopher Marlowe wrote one of the jewels of the Elizabethan theater. In 1992, the acclaimed director, Derek Jarman, brings to the screen an Edward II like you've never seen before. You know, I was looking at a couple of different years around here. I was sort of thinking about 1991. Um, I thought of 1974, which is, you know, very obvious choice, but also one of my favorites. But um, when I realized it would give me a chance to talk about Edward II, I felt like this this was the year to do. Um, so as, as you were talking about... Uh, Michael, like this is, you know, really, um, I'd actually forgotten all this, but the, um, you know, the Arthur Ashe and, and Magic Johnson um, coming out as, you know, uh, being HIV positive. I mean, this and, and during this, you know, abuse and, and, uh, you know, paranoia um, mm-hmm. still like really, I think for, you know, people who are either are not old enough to remember it or just, you know, it, it's easy to forget um, really the dark ages still mm-hmm. in terms of our, you know, attitudes towards, uh, you know, homosexuality and HIV. And- to be like friendly toward gay people was to stand out. I mean, that was, that was, that was still a very much a fringe position to sort of publicly be like, no, it's okay to be gay. It is an adaptation of a play by Christopher Marlowe, sort of famously a homophobic play that ends with the main character um, being sort of sodomized to death with a hot piece of metal. Um, it, you know, it's, there's a, part where like Tilda Swinton is in a cage with a Walkman on. I, I, I don't know then or now if I knew what to make of that, but what I, what I really do remember of this, it's a very sort of stripped down stylized um, staging of this, um, you know, several hundred years old play. Um, and then there was a moment in the, um, in the movie where all of a sudden the, the movie is invaded by these uh, protesters from Outrage, which is the British equivalent of ACT UP. Um, In contemporary dress with their t-shirts with the slogans on, they just burst into the middle of the movie like the cops in Holy Grail. Um, And I just, like, that just, like, made my head explode at the time. It was really like, this is uh, around the same time as I saw um, Angels in America. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had this similar experience. It was just, you can do that? You can yeah. like you can do that in a play. You can do that in a movie. Like you can mm. have this period piece, and then just like have people just like break through the frame of the film and make it immediately contemporary. And that was just um, such a, a powerful idea um, for me at the time, and still I, I feel like I've s- seen very few movies um, in the decade since that have that kind of political charge mm. to them. Um, you know, and, you know, some of it is people have just become sort of more subtle and sophisticated or oblique about their politics, but, um, there's definitely a time for that kind of like blunt didacticism and the height of the AIDS crisis was that time. Um, so the idea that that was something you could do within this, you know, what up to that point seemed like a, you know, pretty weird, I'm sure I thought like interesting, um, but didn't really know what to make of it movie, um, really, I think shaped my ideas of, of what movies were capable of. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was a first time watch for me. This is one that I had meant to, I've been meaning to see for years and finally had a chance to, to, to see. And I, I, I'm always like, I'm a huge sucker for just the sort of like, you know, stylized, modernized reinvention of the classical text. Like I love all of that shit. Um, but he, the way he goes about it, even before that moment is so ingenious there, it's, and, and so cleverly, you know, turning the, 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 the sexual politics of the movie inside out, making it, you know, very queer and very horny and very, 
overt in the sexuality and finding ways to put that even into backgrounds and on the edges of the frame. It's really striking. It's an, it's a pretty incredible piece of work. And, um, and I'm sort of ashamed that I hadn't seen it yet. It's really something. This is the gayest movie I've ever seen. And I mean that like, like with all respect, like yeah, it's yeah, sort yeah. of, and to take this story, do you think that part of the reason he was able to make this incredibly forward movie is because it's an adaptation of something that's hundreds of years old. So like, we're all going to see like the guy that was Shakespeare before Shakespeare. Right. Right. Yeah, Isn't yeah, that yeah. what we're going for? It seems right. to me like if, if he had sort of written this as an original piece, it would have been much harder to sell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I caught up with other Jarman movies for years after this. I think more like into my mid late, 20s i had a sort of a big Jarman binge when the i guess the bfi started to put a bunch of that stuff out on on dvd um but you know i think just the like the word radical i think we haven't used yet but needs to be in here like this is genuinely mm. like a work of like radical queer art mm. um coming out of an extreme political exigency um you know Jarman himself would um announce i don't know if he knew at the time when he made this, but he would, you know, announce that he was HIV positive shortly after this. Um, he, he lost his eyesight and then mm. uh, made his last movie blue, mm. um, which is just sort of an audio track in front of a blue screen. Blue was like 94 or 95, right? I mean, it wasn't very long after this. No, no, not long after this at all. So, um, yeah. So, but it has that, um, that urgency to it and this and this incredible subversion that that you mentioned of taking this incredibly classical text and then doing this really radically modern thing with it. I love yeah. him so much and like what what is so great about 2001 is that it just sort of feels like like he just invented a whole other a new fucking world. And like it's recognizable like all the people have five fingers and toes, but <laughs> it, you know it feels like a completely new different place. And his Jarman's movies just feel like like he's just invented some alternate universe and now we get to go watch it for an hour and a half. They feel disconnected from from sort and and, and in a way that even when you bring outrage into the movie, it mm -hmm. still doesn't it still has a sort of imagined or artistic or some other sort of effect. Yeah. That that is hard that is you know why we make movies and why I don't write articles, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going going back to like his first movie, Jubilee. I mean, he is a, sort of like both a punk and a classicist yeah. somehow. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's yeah, that's and this movie is a really kind of the crowning synthesis of those two impulses. Oh, beautifully said! Wow. Uh, all right, Sam. What is the fourth film then on your top five for ninety two? All right, this one I'm cheating a little bit because this is not a movie I saw probably until like at least 20 years um, mm -hmm. after this, but um, this is um, Hayao Miyazaki's Porco Rosso. Yeah. Mr. Rosso, we've got a job for you. I don't know. Kind of busy. How does it feel to be the top bounty hunter in the Adriatic? These pirates tell me that you got a pretty good reputation in this guy. That American's gonna be trouble. Something else, isn't he? Fight me, pig! One on one! Forget it. I'm off to Milan. And I just, you know, love, I mean, we're all sort of, you know, full of, of admiration for the boy and the heron. Right now, his, you know, second final movie. Hopefully <laughs> there will be a, another one after that. Yeah. Um, you know, he's become a sort of canonical master. Um, I'm sure I'd never heard of him at the time. I hadn't until um, Princess Mononoke, which I think was you know, five or six years after this was released in the U.S., was certainly the first one I I saw. Um, but I, I, I enjoy any chance to kind of talk about the less canonical and less sort of overtly sure. masterful, like just the kind of wacky Miyazaki mm -hmm. Movies. Mm -hmm. This is a you know a movie about a, a flying ace um, who is also a, a basically a man who was turned into a pig. He's called the uh, Crimson Pig in the introductory yep. text. Um, it is a very weird, um, funny movie. There's a, a bit at the beginning where he is uh, rescuing this plane full of like kidnapped schoolgirls from these kind of you know treacherous sky pirates, um, and the sky <laughs> pirates at one point are like 
offloading the girls and they've got one girl and they're leaving this other girl behind. And one of the pirates is like, well, don't you know it's not polite to separate friends? Um, <laughs> it's just, it's always going off in these totally weird, unpredictable um, directions, which I love. It's sort of like if, you know, Casablanca or if only angels had wings somehow had like a pig man um, mm-hmm. in the lead or something. It's got the, you know, the French shunters in the nightclub and the, um, the kind of dashing uh, romantic uh, rival and um, all that, but just like a weird, wacky off the wall Miyazaki that I enjoy for those qualities. Yeah. I mean, it's got all of the stuff that's great about his work. It's, you know, this, um, it it has it's a it's beautiful to look at the animation is you know is is that very specific style and it's and it's but it's got such an energy and a comic ingenuity to it it is it's like it's it's funny in a way that not a lot of his other stuff is i will confess this this was my other first time watch from your list i don't know if i if i was supposed to be like a good international citizen and watch the subtitled version i watched the dub because in the dub, Michael Keaton does the voice of Porco Rosso. Um, and I had somehow missed this entirely, that this collaboration, I mean, not, it's not a collaboration, it's a post, a collaboration after the fact, but that this even existed. Uh, and I, as any casual listener knows, I'm a huge Michael Keaton head. I love everything the guy does. And what he's doing in this vocal performance is so perfect. It's just this sort of gravelly voice thing that he's doing that Michael Keaton thing, but it's, it's such a, a, a marvelous mix um, with what's happening on screen. Was that the version you first saw Sam, or did you see, you know, were you a, a good subtitle reader? I think it was probably a, a good citizen at some point, but I also certainly like watch it with my daughter at some point. So I, I seen the dub before and I did put the dub on this time just for kind of ease of um, yes. refreshing my memory. Yeah. He's playing it like he's like he's, he's Sam Fuller or something. Yes. It's got that yes. incredibly like hard bitten, like forties newspaper man yes. uh, tone to it. It's just a great performance. It is. It's wonderful. It's perfect. Um, Mike, had you 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 had seen this one before me, and you uh, you were very excited for me to check it out. When did you see this? It's one? my first thing that I'll put on when when somebody's like, I don't like cartoons. Mm. You know, I mean, we know grown people that still say that. Right. <laughs> like it's one of the easiest ones to throw on. So yep. for all those reasons, and I have not actually seen the dubbed version. Ah. Um, and so now I have a new version of now you've given me a new version of Porco Rosso to go watch. <laughs> I just You're like welcome. the first time I watch and I I always remember this the first time I watched this movie I was so impressed by the opening credit thing where they're like all the little like languages oh, are going that. one way except for Arabic that. is going the other way. <clears throat> I was like this movie hasn't even fucking started yet and it's already more creative than so many other things that I've seen and more like sort of artistically coherent. Yeah. Like just that first before it even starts the movie's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you liked it. Fine point. I knew you would. Like how You're would right. you not? You You're know. You're right. And then it has this beautiful artistic crawl that then tells you the name of the hero of this movie is the Crimson Pig. <laughs> yes. Let's sure. I'm yep. so sure. in. We're in. Let's go. <laughs> All right, Sam. What then is the fifth and final film of your 1992 top five? Well, this is uh, Brother's Keeper. Brother's Keeper trailer with Spalding Gray. Take one. This is not a commercial. Um, I, I don't make them. I've never made uh, commercials. Um, it's just a talk, I hope an enthusiastic talk, about a fantastic film that I was lucky enough to see at the um, Sundance Film Festival last year in Park Slope, Utah. The film is called Brother's Keeper. The documentary by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. This one, some of these I, I don't um, precisely remember where I saw, um, but... Edward II and Brothers Keeper, I very specifically remember seeing at the, the Sono Cinema in South Norwalk, Connecticut. Um, and later, um, Berlinger and Sanofsky, you know, became incredibly important filmmakers to me with the the uh, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders mm-hmm. of Robin Hood Hills, the sequels for that. Um, I interviewed them, I think, later for uh, the Metallica movie, Some Kind of Which Monster. Which is also really made. good. Also yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and they actually told me, I was like, oh, you know, I saw Brothers Keeper at the Sono Cinema in Norwalk, Connecticut. And they were like, oh, we booked it there. Like, we self-distributed movies at the time. <laughs> like, we, you know, they personally shipped the print to yeah. that I saw to that movie theater. Wow. Um, 
so this is a pretty hardcore uh, verite documentary about um, sort of very rural town in central New York, um, as it's I de- they don't barely even bother to say the name of the town in the news reports in the movie. Um, and it's about these two elderly brothers. Um, well, there are several of them, but the centers on two, um, one of whom is accused of killing the other one. Um, and it comes into this, you know, you can tell that this has already become sort of a big news story. Um, and then and Joe and Bruce have, you know, come in at a certain point, but they are very pointedly, um, you know, staying away from where the news cameras are. They do have one great scene where you see like one TV journalist, like doing a stand up in front of this little kind of, you know, potluck supper at the American Legion or whatever it is. And she goes through and she, um, you know, flubs her lines and then does it again. And then it cuts away to some other scene. And then it cuts back to some other journalist doing a stand up in front of that same yeah. crowd. And it's just, yeah. and it's very clear, like, so this is how the news covers it. Yeah. And this is how we're going to cover it. We're going to go over and like talk to Delbert for a while. And the whole, you know, idea is that these, these brothers are very sort of, I think simple or slow is the word. Um, a lot of people in the community use, they, they um, basically live in a house with like no, you know, running water or electricity. Um, really keep to themselves but are sort of beloved of of the community and then when um this murder charge comes down it's either um you know either think they had it wrong or the idea is that this is maybe like a mercy killing um and the people of the town really kind of seem to support that um Mm -hmm. and then gets into all this really sort of interesting ethical territory where it's like well you know the da sort of seems like he's you know pushing this case and maybe um framing a little a little bit uh, Delbert says, you know, like he's, you know, he confesses to the crime, but then he's like, well, I just did, you know, I, I said I did it how they showed me that I did it, you know, mm. and they told me I would get to go home with the classic sort of false confession yeah. um, set up. But then, you know, it gets very weird when the townspeople are kind of like, well, you know, if he did kill his brother, he was probably in pain and it was just like how you would put down a sick animal. Um, it's like, well, but maybe we're a little too, too yeah. embracing of their yeah. <laughs> lifestyle here. Yeah, but it's just a really great um, sort of pulled back, um, you know, Verite. Again, it's probably the first movie of its kind that I have seen. Um, certainly a, a community that I'd never, uh, kind of community that I'd never really had any exposure to. Um, and I think it holds up uh, really well. Yeah. And, you know, for, for better or worse, um, along with Thin Blue Line, probably one of the first of what we think of as the 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 breakthrough true crime documentary. Yeah. Um, this is one I saw considerably later than the, the Paradise Lost movies. Um, so I was sort of familiar with their style and with the, the, the feel and the texture of their movies, but it's incredibly affecting. Like you really, you really do sort of understand these people in this community and, and, and the way that they sort of manage to burrow into these communities, I think is, is really, um, enviable for for a documentary filmmaker i don't know i think about documentary ethics every day sure as i sure. do my job and yep. you know it's always interesting to re-watch movies that i saw when i was sort of learning about documentaries or or just thinking about documentaries or even working in the news as opposed mm-hmm. to now thinking about you know sort of we have much different thoughts around representation ethics and stuff like that you know and I had mm-hmm. seen this movie several times and loved it, but like watching it this time, it really felt like all of like a lot of those interviews with this sort of other neighbors and people that lived around were in a lot of ways a sort of way for the filmmakers to check themselves, mm. to sort of check that they weren't manipulating the story mm. or check that they weren't in some way sort of using these guys because like yeah. these guys seems like seem like people you could get a false confession out of. Yeah. Like you and I could do that. We don't even have to be like trained police. And that's not really in the movie, but I'm sure that when you're there with them over an amount of time, at some point, those guys just start saying yes. Right. Well, and, and, and it does have, you know, Joe and Bruce kind of came out of, they basically apprenticed with um, Albert and David Maisel's. Oh. Um, and it has that sort of, it has mm-hmm. the gray gardens thing mm-hmm. where, although it's kind of nominally a verite documentary, there's actually a lot of back and forth mm-hmm. between the subjects and the people behind the camera. And you, yeah, you, I think you do really get that sense of, of them searching for something. I mean, one of the things that Joe and Bruce did that I admire the most is they made um, Paradise Lost, this first movie about these, you know, three teenagers, um, we think probably maybe, 
likely um, wrongfully um, persecuted for the these hor- you know horrendous um, child murders. These three young boys kind of you know killed and sexually mutilated in the woods. Um, then they made a second movie to that where they kind of really you know pretty emphatically point the finger at. Um, the father of one of the victims um, and kind of say like, oh, this guy's pretty hinky. We think maybe he did it. Um, and then uh, in the third movie, they kind of walk that back because they kind of, you know, they're not, I've talked to them about it at the time. They're there. They don't like that second movie very much. Mm. They feel like it was rushed um, and, and a little sloppy. Um, and they really pulled back in the third movie and sort of, maybe pointed the finger at someone else, but also like, you know what? Like documentaries are not meant to solve crimes. Like it is actually wow. not our place to wow. like tell you who the real killer is. Like that's right. not, that's actually irresponsible of us. And we mm. shouldn't have done it in the second movie. And now we have to make a third movie to kind of undo mm. what we did. Um, but I, but I think, you know, the ability to kind of live in that uncertainty. I mean, that this, there's this whole, um, as you mentioned, um, this, this whole sort of cottage industry of documentaries that have, you know, in podcasts, um, as well, that have sprung up to kind of like we're going to solve the crime that the police didn't do that, and it's like uh, that, that ask serial how that worked yeah. out. Like I don't yeah. think we end up with a definitive answer yeah. based on these things, and it's really not um, you know what some of these narrative art forms should be. Yeah. I think generally not a business that they should be in. Yeah, agreed. Great movie, great five great movies. Tip top, <sighs> top five, Sam. Um, thank you for bringing those to us. Now let's find out about the big doings of the entertainment business in the year 1992. Here's Mike with the Hollywood Minute. Hollywood freaks from the Hollywood scene. Man, that was heavy. Mm-hmm. That was heavy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Hollywood Minute. Let's uh-huh. let's calm it down. Okay, let's All go right. for something light and easy. Ready? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unforgiven kicked <laughs> kicked everybody's teeth in at the 92 Oscars, taking home prizes for Best Picture, Best Director from Clint Eastwood, and Best Supporting Actor Gene Hackman. Great movie then holds up now. Unforgiven. Sam, where do you land on Unforgiven? Um, I, I was underwhelmed by it at the time, and I was probably, you know, aggrieved that that uh, Altman lost to to Clint. Right. Um, I would have been, I have not, I've not actually seen it since, so I'm probably mm. due for a rewatch. I think my, um, you know, it's it's probably not sufficiently exciting for me at the time. It's probably a little no. too kind of you know classical, um, and not uh, iconoclastic enough. But I, yeah. I'm more kindly disposed to that approach now um, as yeah. a person who is you know, moved into his classical uh, period. Yes. Um. <laughs> yeah. I had, no, I had a very similar response to it at the time. And then, you know, when I went back to it, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I was just like, Oh no, this is actually a fucking masterpiece. Uh, so yeah, ch- you're, you're, you're of appropriate, you know, it's a dad movie. You're, you're of appropriate dad movie age. Uh, highly recommended. What else? Mike? Underwhelm your kid. It'll be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Other Oscar winners included Emma Thompson for Howard's End, Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Vinny, and a long overdue trophy for Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Hoo-ha! Sam, uh, do you like Scent of a Woman? Oh, what a movie. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, uh, maybe <laughs> this is also when, when my sort of extreme cynicism at the, about the Oscars really takes root as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly like... Uh, the first of those really classically like right guy wrong movie um, Oscars that I remember being you know pretty pissed off at at the time. <laughs> I have the uh, the controversial stance that I liked Son of a Woman very much at the time, and uh, I still like it. I like Martin Brest. Um, <laughs> that said, the idea that that is a better performance than Denzel and Malcolm X is uh, fundamentally ridiculous. <laughs> oh, um, what else, Mike? The top movie at the box office for 1992 is Disney's Aladdin, featuring Robin Williams as the genie of the lamp. Williams and Disney fell out after the release, however, when the Mouse House broke their agreement not to use his voice in merchandising. He'd -hmm. taken a much lower upfront fee for voice acting under the terms of that agreement. After the fact, he said, and I quote, You realize when you work for Disney why the mouse only has four fingers, because he can't pick up a check. Bang! Robin don't miss! He was a wordsmith. Other he commercial was. hits of 92 included The Bodyguard, Home Alone 2, Basic Instinct, Lethal Weapon 3, and Wayne's World, Party Time. Everybody knows the chorus. Come on. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Among the final fadeouts of 92 were actor-director Jose Ferrer, the great Sandy Dennis, uh. Alzheimer's cinematographer Nestor Almendros, 
Blazing Saddle Star Cleavon Little. Mm-hmm. Excuse me while I whip this out. Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> co-star Denholm Elliott. In Cold Blood director Richard Brooks, the one and only Marlena Dietrich, Mark's brother's straight man Alan Jones, ah. Psycho star and Last of Sheila co-writer Anthony Perkins. That's an interesting second credit to give him. That's, I you. mean, he deserves <laughs> credit for both things. Fair he enough. Managed to col- if you can collaborate with Sondheim, you know, <laughs> God bless you. And finally, Satyajit Ray, one of the honest-to-goodness geniuses of the art form. That's your Hollywood Minute. All right, Sam, you ready to do a lightning round? Sure. Let's see how this goes. You know how it works. I'm going to feed you a list of titles from John Willis's Screen World Film Manual for 1992. You can comment briefly on each or pass if you wish it. Here we go. The aforementioned Malcolm X. I mean, classic Great. What else? What else can you say about it? Yeah, holds up like a motherfucker. A river runs through it by Robert Redford. Uh, all I remember about that movie is just everything looked gold. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of movies where everything looks gold, Ron Howard's Far and Away. <laughs> Did I? Uh, I actually cannot remember if I've seen that. I think perhaps not, but uh, I might also just have wiped it from my memory. Let's make it a gold-looking trilogy. Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis showing chest and yelling what's to complain about. <laughs> Ron Shelton's White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Sneakers. Sneakers. Oh, my God. You're going to get me fired from Slate. I've actually never seen this movie that Slate has famously written 9,000 articles about before my time. <laughs> I must admit, but we still have like cocktail napkins around the office with like quotes from sneakers on them um, that, that my former workplace, apparently. The feature film debut of David Fincher, Alien 3. Oof. Yeah. What a movie. Um, I That's one. I know there's been a revisionist attempt to reclaim that movie. I think it should stay uh, where it was. Cameron Crowe's singles. <sighs> singles um yeah this was along with reality bites one of those movies where i just felt like um i was being told what my i mean that my generation was and i did not agree with it uh one bit well i i know what really was your generational battle cry sam encino man (laughs) (laughs) louise um yes what a a wonderful film that was (laughs) Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn in House Sitter. Uh, hmm. Pass, I think. I don't recall. Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, Flying Elvises, right? Um, Correct. Very good. There we go. (laughs) We had two from Eddie Murphy in 1992, Boomerang and the Distinguished Gentleman. Hmm. Pass, I think. Robin Williams in Barry Levinson's Toys. Oh boy! I mean, uh, it, it is there like an op, like an inverse of Holds Up? Um, has, any, has has anyone watched that movie since 1992? Out of except that of some like misguided. Uh, I think Barry Levinson became like a sort of cinema enemy for me at some point, and this might have been the movie that did it. David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me. Oh man, yes. Well, this, yeah, this I have a very clear memory of like taking a car load. I was one of the, I think one of the few people at college with a car because I sort of lived like nominally off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, like filled up my like whatever I was driving um, and like took a whole bunch of people like off to the suburbs to see the Twin Peaks movie because I had been obsessed with it in, in high school. We all had it and, and we all just like walked out of it. Um, <laughs> My stance has softened since then, but I think we were all just like, what the fuck was that? Like we were, we were not uh, ready for it. We were deeply confused. Um, Maura Kelly was in it um, instead of Lara <laughs> Flynn Boyle. Everything, everything was weird. Um, but oh my God, like uh, Cheryl Lee in that movie, like what a freaking performance that is. The, the screaming alone will like haunt you forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. 
Okay. Does does like a webcam count as a mirror? Because I'm not sure that I want to be responsible for you <laughs> summoning. It's got a lovely resonant voice, but I don't think I want you summoning Tony Todd in here if we can <laughs> avoid a weird ass movie. Um, scored by Philip Glass. Philip Glass, um, baby. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. I I hope to ask him about that someday because how he you know ended up scoring that particular film. I, there's there's a story there. Allison Anders, Gas, Food, Lodging. Uh, speaking of scores, uh, mm. Jay Maskus. Yes. Then mm-hmm. um, Ioni Sky. Wow, yeah, that's that was a 90s name for you right there. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the daughter of Donovan. Um, speaking of 60s names. Um, yeah, I just, um, that's what I, I feel like I mostly remember like as a vibe. Like I, I mm-hmm. it's a pleasant vibe, but like I just kind of, that's like all that comes to mind is like sort of colors and a feeling. Well, Which, let's go know, out. 30 years later is not bad. Yeah. Let's go out with one last vibes movie then. Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. Oh, I, that, um, gosh, when did I see that? Definitely not in, in 1992. I think probably a couple years later in college. Um, you know, staggering movie. So ahead of its time. I, I barely knew what to make of it when I saw it then. And I, I've, you know, figured it out a little bit more over the years but it still it feels like it just kind of comes from like nowhere and everywhere like the kind of thing was that was not made so much as just you know unearthed whole mm. um it's one of those like you know the way you make a statue is to chip away everything that isn't the statue it feels like that kind of that kind of movie it's just a sort of perfect whole beautifully said uh, how often do we get to go out of lightning round on a poetic note thank you sam Man. adams this guy's a real writer. It's 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 uh, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Sam, where can people follow you on social media and read said writing? Uh, well, <laughs> should I encourage people to follow me on social media? Uh, I am I am follow. Samuel. I am Samuel A. Adams on Twitter and Threads. Uh, Sam Adams on Blue Sky and most other things. Uh, abandon all hope, ye who follow here. I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterbox, where you can find under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show, including this one. Mike, where can people follow you? I am at Fifth Column Films on Blue Sky and Brainwash Lib on Twitter. And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please, for the love of God, leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are a comical overabundance of movie podcasts out there, so your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for 1992? I am going to go with In the Soup, which is just a comfort movie like a bowl of soup that you can (laughs) go back and just watch anytime. Everybody in it is great. Everything about it is great. It's a period piece for me. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's one of those things that it's like, it just, it feels like sort of the first place I lived on my own smelled. I don't know Mm -hmm. exactly how to explain it, but it's Steve Buscemi plays a, a struggling filmmaker. He's trying to raise money and he ends up selling his 500 page script or I don't know, maybe he sells his script for $500. I don't remember the exact like transaction, but he mm-hmm. sells his script and the guy, instead of buying the script, decides he's going to finance the movie. And it turns out that how he's going to finance the movie, you know, it's sort of uh, like, help me take this rug from my friend's house. No, he's on vacation. Don't worry about it. You know, uh, and it just like, it's a piece of art. It's It's ridiculous. It's, I don't know, man. It's just sort of everything the 90s was. In a really nice, like, ridiculously oversaturated black and white movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it's around now. Like, you know, I know it was, for a while there, it was sort of... Because I remember, find. like, there yeah. was a VHS at mm-hmm. least in the 90s. I don't know that there was ever a DVD, but, like, I know there was... This was a video store movie, for yeah. sure. And yeah, and yeah. then it's been released again. You know, Steve Buscemi's famous and shit now. Um, it's been released again and, and it's much easier to see now and it's a nice print and it's, it's just in the suit, man. I just, everything about it is just a comfort movie. I like it a lot. I, the thing I always like to mention about in the soup is that like it won the dramatic prize at Sundance the year that they had 
Reservoir Dogs, Gas Food Lodging, Swoon, The Living End, The Poison Ivy, Johnny Suede. Like there were all of these like huge sort of quintessential 90s indies. Brothers Keeper was that year also. And this was the movie that was like the big winner at Sundance. And then, but like, a bunch no- of filmmakers like picked right. this movie about like yeah. literally their the fall that they yes. just had. <laughs> right? I mean, yes. it, you know, this movie feels really close to home in ways yeah. that like I didn't, yeah. would never want to sort of live that life again but i'm fucking i don't regret that i did yeah you know how about you uh you know three years ago i would have gone with deep cover but i feel like that movie's in the criterion collection now it's got its flowers you don't need me to tell you about it so i'm gonna direct you to the public eye which is um a movie written and directed by howard franklin who uh was the co-writer or excuse me the writer and co-director of my beloved quick change with bill murray Mm -hmm. um this is a movie that very few people have seen or talk about or have any recollection of even existing but it is a like 40s period piece where joe pesci hot off his oscar win plays in one of his rare like leading roles at the time although the same year was my cousin Vinny. uh plays a sort of Ouija style 1940s New York street photographer uh, a guy who famously never took sides he only took pictures except once that was the tagline of the movie where he falls in love with Barbara Hershey who's in perfect femme fatale mode in this thing it's a wonderful sort of noir homage Uh, it's beautifully shot it's atmospheric it's got a good little mystery at its center and it's got a really terrific vulnerable but street smart Joe Pesci performance this one was very hard to see for a very long time Chaos Studio Classics put out a Blu-ray a couple years back and like even on a blind buy I mean wait for a sale or whatever but pick up the public eye because it's like really wonderful thank you again Sam Adams thank you so much Uh, it was a pleasure thank you Mike thank you Jason and thank you for listening It was a very 